0: Let's start. Um, Any any prayer requests today? I'm always glad to say prayers with you guys. Sue, come on, go ahead.
1: Um, I have a small group of women that I'm in a church group with, and two of them are having some really serious struggles at the moment. So without names or without anything, I just like to, to pray for people who are struggling with issues with their children, young children. Um, God. that's all
0: <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for that.
1: Madge.
0: Hmm? Madge. Madge who died? Oh I'm not Madge. Bet. Bet. And nobody else? Um in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You started that right. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, it was wonderful. To, for those of you who weren't there, the readings, the first reading was from Genesis. Um, it was the first day of, or the days of creation. They're one of my favorite readings. I, I could read them forever and not get tired. Um and God said it was good, morning came, evening followed. God it almost puts me to tears to hear that go over and over. It's some of those beautiful verses. Um, to be reminded of the goodness of creation, that you made nothing bad, that everything was good, and to know that um, Christ in some ways symbolized that, embodied it, um, reenacted it in everything he did because in the readings this morning, the gospel, he was healing. What he was doing was um, taking everything that was bad away from people and healing them, bringing them to their goodness. So um, for your words to us, reminding us that there's nothing going on, that you're not turning to good. It's It, it actually goes to the, the question we've been troubling over about free will and... and um, determination, predetermination. That you allow evil to happen to all of us. It's a trial for all of us. Um, some people turn away from it. Um, um, some people are strengthened by um, the trials. Um, strengthen us please that um, that in whatever trials we face or whatever trials um, those who are friends are undergoing, that all of us uh, be strengthened by these troubles, that we get better. Um, there's nothing you do thats not that doesn't have its, as its aim to bring goodness to us. That was the great truth of Boethius. So strengthen us, please, in our faith. Um, Abraham was willing to give his son up in obedience to you. Um, that's, in some sense, the ultimate trial. It was because of that that um, He brought so much to the um, your chosen people and finally to us. So, help each of us to be strengthened in our faith and let all the work that we're doing together here in this group strengthen our reason to see that there's something going on with our rationality, with all the things we do with our reason, not all of them good, that our reason is a way of coming to you. Help us to straighten it out <laughs> to to get better at what we do with our powers of reason. I ask for a special blessing on Sue's friends, the two women in her group who are struggling. Family struggles, struggles are universal. I don't think any of us don't know about them. We bear them in our own families a lot. Um, Um, Stay with those two women. Help them. Let her to find a support in the women, the other women in the group, particularly Sue, since um, they're on her heart. And the rest of us in our families. um, They're large burdens because they go to the most intimate loves we all carry for those we really love. Um, I ask for a special grace, uh, a blessing on our own family. We've just come through something of a real struggle. Um, we're grateful for um, these moments come sometimes when you don't expect them, just when things look so dark, and then suddenly somebody does something to make a turn. God, how good you are! Help us to hold on through our trials. We ask a special blessing for an older woman who's a friend of our oldest daughter Amy. It's a woman whose name is Bets. Um, um, she just got taken to the hospital a couple of days ago and is there still. Um, watch over her, protect her. Um, when, e- when any of us face these ultimate moments, I mean, what do we say? If it's your will, if our prayers help, heal her. Heal her. Help her to, ref- um, to return um, to be a good friend of Amy's and for Amy to be a friend to her. It's a good friendship. Um, and if it's her time, help dispose her heart, help prepare her for, to let go of this world. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Julie, are you here? I see your name. It would be good to know you're here.
2: Yeah, yeah, Bob, I'm here for another round.
0: Good for you. God bless your soul. I know this is, just so you know, Julie's doing double time because she's been online now for two nights, and I know she—I know she, she's getting worn. She, she's she's getting worn out by the by the two nights. So you
2: know, it's getting a little heavy, Bob. But I, I,
0: know, I know, I know, I know. I got there. your letter today, so <laughs> so anyway, I'm I'm glad you're here. Let's take a look at our our psalm for tonight, can we? Um. I was trying to think of a, of a. I was actually going to start Isaac and Alt Archibald that that Robinson poem that I told you about. I'm I'm so eager to get to it, because it's so casual. It's just so informal and relaxed. But I thought this was not the night. Um, we've got too much to deal with in Lear. There's too much going on, and to me it's it's too intense, too deep, um, to um, to let ourselves be distracted. So. I'm going to hold off on that. Um, Lear is I, I think one of the most important plays of the modern world so we're on track. Um, there, there's a great grace here, extraordinary grace. What happens at the end is almost more amazing than what happens at the end of almost any of tragedy. We're going to be doing Pericles when we finish this and you know from my own reading I've been wanting to do this now for, t- for two years. Pericles belongs to that small group of plays that I would call sacramental. Um, They're as close to a sacrament as I know. There's a quality of mysticism in what goes on epiphanies and sacramental reunions and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, When you recover in our faith, when you go through an ordeal and recover, I can't find the word. Um, But Um, amazing renewals and rebirth and an enlarging of vision and understanding and they're pretty amazing so even though this is very painful it ends with one of the most extraordinary endings so I'm eager to get there but it's going to take a little bit to get there and it's going to point us towards uh, Pericles. Okay. So I chose a, um, a smaller work for its simplicity and actually for its holiness because I, I thought given what's going on in Lear that it would be good to be reminded of the way in which God is at work in the world. So we're doing Psalm 140 or 104. I included it on your on the uh, email that I sent out if you got it. If you didn't get it, um, you can go online or I don't think I got to put in it online you have to do it after class. you can if you don't have the sheet just just listen. Um, it's very short okay? Psalm 104. You can say the response with me if you'd like, or you can, I'm going to repeat it. I'd be glad to hear anybody else chiming in. But the response is, May the Lord be glad in his works. Remember, the first reading today was um, um, the the first four days of creation. So it was God creating this and that and this and saying, and it was good. Um, morning came, evening followed, the next day. And it went on like that for you know the four days of creation, first four days of creation. So this psalm is celebrating his works, the good that he is doing in the world. Okay. May the Lord be glad in his works. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are great indeed. You are clothed with majesty and glory, robed in light as with a cloak. May the Lord be glad in his works. You fixed the earth upon its foundation, not to be moved forever. With the ocean, as with a garment, you covered it. Above the mountains the water stood. May the Lord be glad in his works. You send forth springs into the water courses that wind among the mountains. Beside them the birds of heaven dwell. From among the branches they send forth their song. May the Lord be glad in his works. How manifold are your works, O Lord! In wisdom you have wrought them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. May the Lord be glad in his works. Okay, from that, (laughs) we're going into the darkness. (laughs) Hold on to that psalm while we go, okay? I want to do um, as quick a review as I can um, of last week. Um, for the last several weeks, gladly, um, we—I mean, for me, happily—we've gone back to the ancient world to Aeschylus and Sophocles. We didn't do it when we started the course. I—I I wanted to get the major works out, but we're still together, and so I thought you were strong enough to endure this torture. We've gone back to the two, two greatest dramatists of the ancient world. I can't read as I was reading Aeschylus and Sophocles with you guys the last couple of months. I couldn't read them without seeing Shakespeare everywhere. The subtlety with which they draw their characters, the action, the plot. Um, there's no way Shakespeare could have done what he did without these men. That's how great they are. And you know that in both poets they give us a vision finally of some the word I was looking for was was redemption. Um, They give us some sense of a redemption possible for man that only comes with a larger community. That's true for Orestes in the founding of Athens in Aeschylus and it's true for Oedipus who you know ends up his life in Athens at Colonus. So both of them had this sense of this extraordinary state of blessedness that humans are capable of having it's offered them in their sufferings even even and this is what's so crucial even in the face of the worst sins that men can men can commit I want to say that again both poets are 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 making us aware that there is something redemptive going on in nature some blessing offered man even in the face of the most horrible sins humans can commit. I hope that's clear after saying it twice. Orestes kills his mother. I can't think of a more horrible act. She's the one who nursed him. Her milk gave him life, or the milk of the nurses she you know, turned him over to. And Oedipus killed his father and slept with his mother. So in both plays we're seeing humans do the most horrible things and yet it's because they face those things with the help of the gods Orestes has the help of Athena and Apollo and you know that um, Oedipus is blessed by the gods with the help of the gods they attain a blessedness, a state of blessedness, both of them. So in, in amazing ways, they're anticipating Christ. I mean, that's been the purpose of our work together. The, the great challenge for Christians, I believe, is, I mean, the, I, the, I think the temptation, this is Paul's word for the Jews, that a veil had fallen over the Jews. They ceased to practice their faith the way God asked them to. The great challenge for Christians today is the same. I think, I think that veil has fallen over Christianity that we, we are not always doing what God asks. We go through the motions just like the Jews did. Um, we we should not despair. You know we're, we're being given images of men who've done the most horrendous things who are blessed. That's the promise of Christianity if we go to God. That we will be redeemed, that there's a pattern of redemption going on in the world. That's that's our Christian faith, that this pattern of redemption is at work if we only turn to the gods for help, turn to the God. Okay? So we've been reading these plays of the ancient world that very much point towards Christ. Um, um, we've talked about what tragedy is doing, that it, that it always moves through a reversal of Peripatia, the action of peripetia, it turns things. In a moment of recognition that turns a human being around gives him strength to take on things that he couldn't do. And in both of those cases, Orestes and Oedipus, it was just it was a, a courage and a humility to see their own sins, to not be afraid. the light from Apollo that could help you know, show those sins. So we've been looking at some pretty heavy stuff. Um, the, the one the one thing that I wanted to just well here if you got my notes you'll see uh, uh, in the notes that I gave in the review section I I reminded everybody of the words that ended Oedipus at Colonus because we just finished the Oristia and we were bringing the Oedipus trilogy to an end we didn't read Antigone but we were looking at the whole action of the three plays Oedipus and Colonus ends with these two passages that that were memorable, and I hope everybody will remember when they think about Sophocles. Remember, Oedipus comes to that point where he's going to leave his daughters. he's going to go to this holy ground, and something will happen to the gods. His calling will be fulfilled. The whole last play shows his obedience to the gods that he's not running away from anything. he's trusting the gods, he's suffered, he's coming to this place. And he says to his daughters as he's about to leave them, they shall no longer bear the burdens of taking care of him. One word frees us of the weight and pain of life. That word is love. The one thing that he was calling his daughters to was to love, to hold on to that word. And remember the last line of the whole trilogy, the Oedipus trilogy was, these things are in the hands of gods. So, if we if we wind up our work on the on Aeschylus and Sophocles, it's just impossible to see what these men have done, the horrendous things they've done, and not see the blessed to, to which they're invited once they move with the gods, cooperate with them Now here's so that's just a quick review to to get us to uh, Lear. But I I wanted to leave everybody with one last comment on on the ancient world because it takes us to this troubling, this naughty question that we've been dealing with for months. Um, um, It started with Boethius. Um, You know, it was actually at the center of his work. It was the central the linchpin, the center that held all of the constellation together. Remember that Aristotle said that he thought that Oedipus was the paradigm of tragedy um, for a reason. I'm going to read from my notes because I I want to try to be as clear as I can on this because the point is so central to everything we're doing. So I'm going to read from my notes for a minute. It's It's on the outline that I gave you guys. What makes the irony of Oedipus so great is that Oedipus didn't knowingly commit any sins. He didn't commit sins and hide them or rationalize them away. You know, he didn't hold something in his heart the way we may do and have to go to confession or even commit sins and hide them and go to confession. He did nothing knowingly wrong. He learns from sources outside himself that there was a whole dimension of sin involving him that he wasn't aware of. It's why Aristotle called Oedipus the paradigm of tragedy. The play points up a fundamental problem with man, with all of us. We often do things thinking we're okay. There's nothing wrong with us following rules. By the way, this is taking us straight to Lear. We're following rules. We're doing what society dictates. Um, we're doing things we think we're okay when we're not and only discover in time there was more going on than we saw or realize. Something to the motives behind what we were doing than we knew. Something that only surfaces in the consequences of our actions. We very often go through the world thinking that our actions are fine and then we learn from consequences. It may be in our family. You know that things get uncovered in time. Um, do we think we're doing one of Elliot's great lines in the Four Quartets? It's one that Suzanne puts on the fridge. Do you remember that? Um, Come to regret
2: the things that I have done. Let me get it.
0: <laughs> She's. This means enough to her. She's gonna. She gave me one of those looks. So I'm not fooling around here. You guys are gonna have to wait. <laughs> this is my wife talking. Um. It, it's. She loves it. It's. It's. It's one of the quotes she has, in the, I mean that's how important it is, it's it's, it's the reason, realization you come to and you realize that so many of the things you did thinking were right when you were younger in time you come to realize were full of mistakes there's no way you could have seen them until you see their effects in the consequences of what you did and that's so often true in families and in friendships because there the consequences are visible to us. This is um, T.S. Eliot, and, and it's from um, Little, G- Little Gidding in the Four Quartets. I think we did the Four Quartets. It's, it's one of the... We're going to go back to it. I'm, we're going to close off the... Sue said no. <laughs> we're going to go back... <laughs> you big wimp. <laughs> oh, God bless your souls. We're going to go back to it. You're going to have to tough it out. This is Eliot from Little Gidding*. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm which once you took for exercise of virtue. You know, we pride ourselves in thinking we did so well and then learn years later that isn't what was going on. There was more going on than we saw. So one of the, one of the truths that we're learning from Oedipus Rex is just that. He did nothing that he knew was consciously wrong. Everything he did, he thought was right. And then he discovers later that there's a whole dimension of sin to what he was doing that he didn't see. So that's one of the beauties of the play. We saw the same thing in Dante. The same truth. And the irony is almost as great, almost as start. You know that when the play, or when the comedia opens, Dante's going up that mountain. He wants to go to God. The sun's there. Allegorically the whole opening is, is it's that moment when you realize, remember he's in a wood, you realize that you're in trouble, you want to go to God and you set off. He tries to go up that mountain in the three beasts beat him back. Well what's the meaning of his descent into hell? There's no meaning to it unless he's learning to see those things which he didn't know were at the center of his soul. So the whole venture into Inferno is uncovering all those things we don't want to see or that we don't think is there. And it's only when he sees them, this is so truthful, it's only when he sees them that he knows he needs help because he didn't see them and he turns to God for mercy because while he didn't see them, he had no reason to turn to God. Right? If you think you're sinless, who needs God? Keep doing what you're doing. The whole truth of Oedipus, the whole truth of the Inferno or the Divine Comedy is you you can't get to him without first going down. There he learns to see all those things he didn't see before. And that's when he looks to God's mercy and he gets the help going up Purgatory. So um, that irony has been at the center of actually almost every work we've read. But I wanted to. I wanted to. I wanted to close with this comment because it focuses on this this knotty problem that we've been, you know, struggling with for actually a couple of months. I think. Um, if our freedom, our free will, is directly related to what we know. I want, to, I want my son or daughter to go to this college because it has this program or I want to take this class because this or I want to ask for a raise because of or I want to change job you know I mean choose your circumstances the choices we make depend so often on what we know right because it presents us with alternatives so re- this is St. Thomas the freedom of the will is rooted in reason. It's our ability to see things that helps us makes our choices. Yeah? That's sensible enough, yes? Because or, or should I steal that? I remember when I was a kid, I think I've confessed this to you guys online. I remember the first time I the, the first recollection I have of committing sin is when I was a kid and stole a knife in a store. And my mother learned about it and made me take the knife back, but but, you know, you've got a choice. Should I steal the knife or not? Or should I do this or not? And um, and sometimes in our weaknesses, we do what we know we shouldn't do. And sometimes we do things when we think we're right, when we're not. So the root of freedom for Thomas is in, or the, the root of freedom is in the, our reason. So the serious question is, what are the depths to which our reason can penetrate if our reason stay on the surface this goes to Lear if our reason stays on the surface we can keep justifying our lives forever I did this I did this I did this I did this right reasons making everything did okay but if reason begins to show that there are other things like Virgil taking Dante into hell so Virgil could show Dante make a parent things to his reason that would help Dante see things, then it changes the whole way we stand in the world and how we use our free will, what we do with it. So I wanna focus, I wanna just put this statement in, and offer it in the form of a question, but I'm gonna put it in the form of a statement just to leave our work in Oedipus because you know that the, the center of the work in Oedipus Rex was the Oracle of the Gods. That defined the whole work. Modern criticism focuses on the psychology of characters. Assume a fate. Man has no free will. All he does is in conformity to a destiny that has already been determined. In the ancient world we called that fate or destiny. In the case of the modern sciences it's by matter, by determinisms in our psychic nature. Freud believed we had no free will, that we had these psychic dynamisms, and they determined our nature. At the root of every man was this desire to kill his father, have sex with his mother, and the repression and avoidance mechanisms we set up protect us from dealing with that. So Freud found a help in Oedipus because Oedipus, on the surface, seems to to be about predeterminations, fated actions, okay? But there's something else going on in Oedipus that modern criticism doesn't deal with. All ancient works, all ancient um, works were preoccupied with a spirit of presumption on the part of man—a question of whether he's open to the gods or not. You know that from almost every work. It was probably the most intense preoccupation of the ancient world. The great majority of men tend to make their own wills more important than the gods. Hector did it in the Iliad. Polydamus kept saying, the birds say this, 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 this. Kept ignoring them. At the very end, when Hector faced his death with Achilles, he said, Polydamus is going to shame me. His concern was more with being shamed by Polydamus than what he was facing. He ignored the gods through the whole thing. Hector, the suitors in Odysseus, constantly the suitors were being given premonitions of things to come. They ignored them. Odysseus's companions on the voyage ignored the gods oracle said don't eat the meat of Helios' remember they ate it and died. <coughs> Turnus in the Aeneid, we we can go on and on, it was one of the most important concerns of the ancient world. Lyos and Jocasta and Oedipus do all they can to avoid the gods and the oracles in fact everything in Oedipus turns on the oracles but the oracles themselves raise a problem that moderns avoid, and that someone like Boethius would never avoid. So here's the question I want to ask tonight, and I don't want Fred. I'm not going to take it up. I know you don't want to either, but I want to just leave this with everybody to as our way of, you know, trying to focus a concern that we've had through these in our work with the ancient works. The oracles have a problem. Did the gods give the oracles in Oedipus Rex in order to show that the lives of Lyos, Jocasta, and Oedipus were already fated, already determined? Or did they do it because they knew in their impieties the characters would do everything they could to avoid the oracle and so bring it about themselves? There's two different ways to read that. In one they're saying they're already fated In the other, they're saying that everything they did um, in their impieties to avoid that fate actually brought it about. In the first case, the action of the characters are effects. They're caused by the gods or some destiny. In the other, the second, they are causes. They happen because the characters, by their own impieties, by their disbelief, in the gods, choose them. Now just to try to flesh this out a little bit make it give some weight to the options here. Um, And Sue brought it up last week and I was so glad she did. Um, Abraham was told to take Isaac and sacrifice him. And we've talked about this. I I can't imagine Sarah being happy about that. (laughs) But he took him. And the fact that he took him led to an absolutely different outcome in the oracle. Isaac was saved. Think about other oracles. Macbeth, I don't know if any of you have read that, was given an oracle concerning the witches. He completely misread it. The meaning of the the, the Oracle was different from what he, from his understanding and our understanding. When we get to the end of the play, it's on the basis of that Oracle that he thinks he's safe when he's not. If any of you have watched the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, you, I can't remember the name of the, the that one of those monsters um, who was unafraid of the girl, the woman, who was ready to fight him. Nazgul. Nazgul. And... Um, and she responds to his challenge of not being afraid of a of a of and somebody no born by man or something like that or no man can n- kill me no man could kill me um and she's a woman and she kills him i mean she's harmed by it because it's spiritually such an overpowering evil but um we suddenly see a twist in the oracle ahab we've read ahab together you know that he completely misread that oracle at the very end, it has a very different meaning. So what we're what we're accustomed to seeing in literature, or often see in literature, is that very often human beings think they understand the gods. Remember, we're dealing with an ineffable, almost incommunicable order until Christ, when finally God himself comes down and makes clear so many of the pronouncements of God, because he says, In me you see the Father. You, I mean, he clarifies a lot, but there's a tendency in human beings, particularly in our hubris, our pride, to th- to presume that we understand things when we don't. Now, f- what Freud did was take the effects of that oracle, the fact that, not the causes. He treated he treated the effects as if they were causes. The fact that Odysseus killed his father and slept with his mother. And he took that as the principle of modern psychology, a form of determinism, that this is one of the determinisms of man in his physical nature. Freud did not go on to Oedipus at Colonus, because it's in that play that Oedipus follows the gods and and attains this blessedness, because that's something Freud would not do. He did not believe in God. He couldn't go there. According to his own materialist prejudice, his empiricist prejudices prevented him from doing that. So, when we, as, when we leave this ancient world and and with this, you know, this nagging question of free will and fate, I just want to leave that question with everybody, so you can, you know, we're going to face it again in Calvin, in the fundamentalist religion. We're going to see it rising its head again in another form. But it, it's, been, it's been a problematic issue from the beginning of time. So let me leave it there. I'd like to turn to um, um, Lear and, and avoid any questions if I can. <laughs> if anybody wants to write me on it, write me. But I really want to get to Lear. So um, let's put this ancient word, well ancient work away, but um, to Lear, King Lear. I just want to make a couple general points about um, Shakespeare before we turn to the play itself. Um, um, A couple of things. If you've all looked at my notes, I I remember giving them to you when we did um, Hamlet, particularly Hamlet you see that Shakespeare, unlike Dante belonged to the Middle Ages in the sense that he looked at the the Holy Roman Empire um, as an entity to be set off in contrast to the church. We know that the two were in conflict through the greater part of the Middle Ages. So Dante's um, framework for dealing with the commercial regime, which was Florence, the prototype of the modern commercial regime, was that tension between those two powers? At Shakespeare's time, the Holy Roman Empire's collapsed, and two changes have taken place, which radically changed the way he looks at the world from the way Dante did. Okay, so if you look at Shakespeare's play, if you if you go to that file that I included, you'll see that he did all these regimes. Um, I don't have um, Ancient Greece, time of Athens, mid-Sumerian um time and much dream, I'm missing one.
3: No
0: sense. Hmm. I can't remember. Sorry. The Roman plays, um, Coriolanus, Julius Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra. Um, the history plays, all in two court um, um, quartets, groups of four plays. He dealt with English history, all the English history that led to the takeover by the Tudor regime, all the Henriot plays. Um, the, 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 the first one was um, the, um, historically those battles that took place that led to the takeover by the Tudor regime, but when Shakespeare completed it, I think he realized that the causes of the Tudor takeover lay earlier, so he went back to Richard II and moved forward. So we've got those plays on English history. Then we've got all the plays on modern Europe. um, Merchant of Venice, Othello, All's Well That Ends Well, um, um, As You Like It. I mean, you can go on and on. Um, So he's written plays about um, France um, and um, Africa. Tempest involves Africa and Europe. Um the, great, the interesting fact, he wrote more plays set in Italy than he did in England. I believe that's because he saw that the greatest influence for shaping the modern world came out of Italy, specifically out of Rome. It was the tensions between the church and state that focused what was going on and led to this, to the Renaissance, this, this great change so shakespeare is i, I believe is probably the, the probably the the greatest poet the, the wisest poet um the the one poet who, who most completely understands the importance of the city political life um, for man he's, he's given us a greater broader deeper wisdom on that issue than any other poet who's written he also lived at a time when anybody holding the Catholic faith um, was in danger. You know that Catholics were being persecuted; um, their properties were being taken, priests were um, in prison and um, and executed. Um, um, remember, Henry had forced everybody to sign the um, the that that bill he passed on the sovereignty of the king to decide on on matters of dogma. Henry declared himself the head of the church and everybody had to sign at, at the cost of their execution or imprisonment if they didn't. So Shakespeare interestingly finds himself in a position of having to speak the truth like Aeschylus or Sophocles or anybody, Dante, at risk of um death if you did and it seems to me one of the great things that he did is write all of these plays that in, obliquely are critical of England without directly criticizing England or the king it's interesting just for example um, if you if you remember the the opening scene today when the lords are asked to declare their love for cordelia yeah, it's for lear hmm, in lear what I for lear um no no the, sh- Um, Their love for um, Cordelia, Burgundy renounces it. He's more English. It's the French king who openly declares his love for Cordelia when Lear has um, banished her, dishonored her. Shakespeare is often very, very critical of the English people as a poet, but his deepest criticisms are very often oblique. um, if we've done *Winter's Tale* together, remember *Winter's Tale*. In *Winter's Tale*, Leontes puts his wife in the tower and um, has his daughter taken away because she can't be an heir. Now, how much of that would have spoken to Henry marrying again and again and again because his women wouldn't produce a male heir? Um, we can find a similar obliqueness going on in *Macbeth*. Macbeth was going to kill, did kill the king and finally suffers from it. So in in lots of those plays we find Shakespeare aware of what's going on in contemporary England and in contemporary Europe, but he deals with them obliquely. I mean they're part of what goes on in the action, but we have to we have to read closely to see what he's saying. Um, there's no way to overemphasize the importance of men like Plato and Aristotle, Boethius, Augustine, St. Thomas, in the writing of Shakespeare. Shakespeare had one of the most complete understandings of man that any poet has ever had. He got them from the ancients, from the great political thinkers, Plato and Aristotle, and from the great spiritual masters, particularly Augustine, Boethius, and and, um, Thomas. Now here's where I want to sum up because um, there are two points I want to make with respect to these background issues. One is that two changes took place in Shakespeare's time that made it clear that the world was changing in a radical way. One of them was the Protestant Reformation and the other was the Scientific Revolution. And the very nature of the Protestant Reformation is um, towards subjectivity. It's a person's inner sub private subjectivity that's going to determine his stance with God, his private faith. That's going to be true for both Luther and Calvin. More true for Luther, but for both of them. The objective presence, the objective presence of Christ, the sacraments are removed. So um, it's reinforced a tendency in the modern mind towards subjectivity or relativism. This is what I believe. It's true. Don't anybody argue with me. It's my truth. It's true. It doesn't matter that the truth of one person contradicts the truth of another. The Protestant church keeps fragmenting because they're opposed to each other. There's no sense that there is a truth that somebody has to bind himself to. It's my truth, it's truth. The other one is the scientific revolution. Um, And it's hard to measure the effects of that, except one of them was that it tended to undermine traditional ideas of belief presumption was that science could give people objectivity on all matters except the difficulty was that the basis of those truths were mathematics and math tends to abstract from the world to from concrete realities towards abstractions in the mind so Shakespeare knew was aware I mean he was he was a genius he was just extraordinary mind he was aware of what the effects could be remember when we did all's well that ends well when Helena when Helena performed the miracle on the king and cured him? Lefieux's answer was, the days of miracles are past. I mean, that's an indication that we've already stepped into a post... We're leaving the Catholic Middle Ages. We're entering a a different world. And there are two major influences, and Shakespeare was aware of both of them. One came from the Protestant Reformation, the other one came from the Reformation in scientific ways of thinking and the role that they would play in our lives. Mark, did you have a a question or a statement or something? Yes.
4: A lot of times you'll bring up statements like the one you just made about um, uh, the time for miracles has passed, and then you make a very grandiose, I guess, accusation about that. And I just would like to know how you come to that conclusion on some of these. Because as you read any literature, there could be a phrase in there that if you read it one way in your head, this could be earth-shattering, amazing news. And the other way, like, yeah, okay, it's just another line in a play, move on to the next one. So I noticed that you'll take, there's certain things that you'll take and you'll run with, and that's, that's why you're here and you're smarter about it than I am, right? But, but I'm just kind of curious as to why you say, okay, that one line means that Okay, God is now dead, and I'm going to get there through these other things.
0: Uh, Mark, part of it comes from the from my reading of. I, I I I think there may be one or two plays of Shakespeare that I haven't read, um, but I've spent my life reading Shakespeare, and most of them I know well. Um, so one of them is reading Shakespeare in the context of everything he's written. But in that, I'm, let's take that particular play because. In that particular play, it's really clear that, that the action takes place on the edge of a world that looks back to a Christian worldview and one that looks forward. I mean, that's, that's explicitly, that's not me taking one line. That's the action of the whole play. We've done this, so I'm assuming all of you are remembering the action. That's not one line. That, that's definitive. France is in a stratified class society. It's fragmented that way. It's hierarchical. Um, it looks back to a Christian worldview. The king is the ruler. Um, what what um, Helena does um, is absolutely at odds with everything that's going on. If you remember, everything she does is unconventional. She goes after Bertram. She blames herself for his actions, what he does. But she performs a miracle, and it's it's in the it's in I mean in the context of. The king's illness, and it's being made clear in the king that all the best scientists, the best doctors—that's that's from the play—those who have the best scientific knowledge could not cure her. Yeah. I mean, one, him, him. One of the things you can say. I mean, I'm. This is not me making a grand. I don't. I mean, I don't feel like it's a grandiose statement. I, I'm not sure you and you and Carl and I need to get together. on our- that's not a grandiose statement or an accusation. It's not an accusation. I think it's a statement. C.S. Lewis is making the same sort of statement. In abolition. I think it's fair to say that the scientific mind has made it harder for people to believe in miracles. That's just a. That's just a. You know, the talk about God being dead didn't come from me. That's a general statement. There's the general statement, not me. These are. These are the words of our time. I, I, I can go back for a hundred years and find books to that effect. Um, man against the sky, man without God, man isolated. That's the condition of the modern world. That's, a po- those, that's the language of a post-Christian world. So it's not me making a grandiose. I'm not trying to be grandiose here. I'm trying to um, emphasize a point so that we can get to what I think is at Lear. That line is in the context of a larger action, and everything in the action only amplifies the meaning of that line. The best doctors, the most scientifically trained in the modern fields, because they were already present and at work, could not help the king. Helena did something. Remember, she's described as having this third eye. That's not a scientific term. Although, I think when science gets close to entering that, I think science has improved. That's a mystical term. Helena had this third eye. She could see things other people didn't. She performed a miracle that nobody else did. She brings about a healing. So I'm, I'm not making grandiose statements. What I'm trying to do right now is give some sense of Shakespeare's awareness that something is happening that separates the Christian Middle Ages from the modern world. And I think most seri- believers are not believers. Most Intellectuals, most serious thinkers, would agree with that. That's not me. There are lots of intellectuals who say a a paradigm shift took place. A whole shift in the way that we think about the world took place. What I'm trying to suggest here is that Shakespeare was aware of it, and his awareness permeates. It helps inform what he does with his plays. He's going to show it in Lear when we finally get there. So there there are two revolutions that are taking place that radically mark a change um, in the way men think, in the way they look at each other, what they do with each other, things like that. Um, Alan Tate, who I I think is one of the finest American, one one of the finest American critics and a great poet himself, said in one of his pieces, It's a a thought I've given to you before. He said, I think correctly, it's not grandiose, it's, it's a generalization that I think is grand and true. He said that the greatest literature tends to be produced at the moment of crisis in a civilization. I'll say it again, that the greatest poetry, not all poetry, the very greatest poetry tends to be produced at the moment of crisis in a civilization at that moment when a civilization is about to lose its identity something new is entering the world my claim since we've begun was that's what marked the Iliad there's this disorder in the way that men look at men there you know things that Achilles brings in this it marked Genesis Exodus all that goes on in the Old Testament in the the earth in the early books. It marks a whole different way of standing in the world. My claim has been the Old Testament is the basis of, it's the founding work of our civilization. On the other side of that prophetic literature is natural literature works like the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid that I think are offering a similar perspective to the biblical from a natural order. So all great literature The Iliad, the Odyssey mark a change in in Western civilization. The Aeneid did it just at the moment, or at that time period, when Rome is uh, at its greatness and about to decline. Because we're already heading into the bad emperors. Rome is on its way out. Civil War, the Romans have almost destroyed themselves. Caesar went to battle with Brutus and Anthony. We read that in Anthony and Cleopatra. You know that from your histories. I would say Boethius' work does the same thing in the mid-mid um, of the medieval period. Shakespeare's work comes on the verge of modernity. He's looking back Dante. Dante's Divine Comedy and Shakespeare stand together. Dante's looking back to a Christian Middle Ages that's about to disappear. The new, the commercial regime is introducing a whole different way of life. It's not feudal. it's not directed by the church. It's something completely new. Out of it comes divine comedy. Two centuries later, Shakespeare's writing in the midst of the Renaissance, and what he gives us? All the plays on Europe, ancient Greece, ancient England, those are not grandiose, I mean, they may be grandiose because of the, the I don't know, the, the amplitude of the meaning, but what I'm suggesting is that, that something is going on. To finish Tate's, Tate's remark, he said, the greatest literature tends to come at the moment of the crisis of the civilization, when an old way is passing away and they're having to face mysteries when that moment comes, as it did in the Reformation and the Copernican Revolution, men can no longer hold on to the assumptions that they've held. They have to question everything. And it forces the really great men to go to those assumptions and explore them. What I'm suggesting is that's what we get in Shakespeare. We're not just reading plays. I mean, I've been hitting you guys over the head with this forever. but poetry is showing us things that we can't get in other ways. Um, King Lear is a really important play because he sets it back in pre-Christian times. This was hundreds of years he set it back. Lear was an actual king just like Hamlet was an actual prince. The irony in Hamlet is um, Shakespeare sets Hamlet in Wittenberg which is where Luther put up his theses. The actual historical hamlet lived centuries earlier. Wittenberg hadn't been founded yet. So according to historical standards, I mean, his, history professors won't read Shakespeare because they say he's an awful historian. <laughs> he's, not, he's, he's not bound by literal... He's not, that is he's, a true statement, Bob. Sorry? mark say it again that is a true statement it is it is you and i give it a different meaning i'm afraid but it is a true statement um lear was an actual king he existed centuries before the coming of christ why did shakespeare go back to that period this the, the the suggestion i'm making here is that he's trying to show us something about the modern world by what he's doing now you may Want to quarrel with me when we get through with this, but at least at least give a hearing until we get, you know, get along some ways in the play to see what it's about. But those are some of the more important background things to be important or to to think about. His grasp of political realities that he got from these men, um, the great spiritual masters, the two um, revolutions that were going on, the Protestant and the scientific. And more importantly, some people will say, some critics will say, that Shakespeare's greatest influence was uh, Montaigne, Frenchman, his essays. Lots of critics will say that the greatest influence in Shakespeare's life was Montaigne because Montaigne was a great skeptic. Montaigne was responding to the revolutions at that time, Protestant scientific. Descartes is going to come out of that. Kant will come out of it later. The world is changing... Modern philosophy came out of that moment. It's idealistic. That modern philosophy starts with ideas in a person's head, not with reality, with an idea in a head. That's the basis of what Descartes did in... and he consciously, consciously set out to put philosophy on a new ground. He was so certain that science would give certainty to our lives, that he wanted to refound philosophy on the basis of science. <coughs> Mark, that's true too. Um, so we're at, we're, at a, we're at a real juncture historically in time. So there's a value in looking to Shakespeare because he's aware of something, of something changing, of an old way of looking at things being replaced by a new. So one of the questions that I just want to ask here at the outset is what's he doing with Lear? Why did he go back centuries? So it's, it's a, a thousand years from Shakespeare's England. Why did he go back and set that play there? Okay? Next week, I'm going to uh, pull up that, that file that I sent you on the political regimes. I want to just go through it a little bit more carefully just so you can see. but this is just a just a quick brief um, um, you know overview of some of the, some of the more general currents of thought going on at Shakespeare's time. Any thoughts before? I'm, i I want to make one more statement general, because it goes directly to the play, but any I mean, I know those are generalizations, and they're not going to hold up under all specifics, but i but I, I think they're uh, they're fairly safe as generalizations. they're accurate. Okay, here's here's where the here's where all of this I hope will crystallize a little bit for everybody. This is the claim I'm going to make for King, King Lear, so hold on to it as you read and let's see what happens tonight. Here was Gr- Plato's great challenge. And I and I think Aristotle was a greater philosopher than Plato. I suggested that in some of our meanings together, Plato Aristotle had some serious criticisms of Plato, and seems to me philosophically they hold up. This is not the time to go into them. But, but I think one of Plato's greatest, greatest contributions, um, there's lots, there's lots in what he did with his dialogues, but one of the greatest is this. The fundamental theme of Plato's Republic is one we've gone over before. When that book begins, a group of people surround Socrates and say, "Come, tell us about justice." And Socrates says, "What if I don't want to go?" And they say they're going to force him. So one of the things that we we're inter- one of the themes introduced in the beginning of the Republic is this: What do you do when people don't listen? And I hope that's common enough because I think all of us encounter it every day in our marriages, in our families, in our relationship with our spouses, our kids. What do you do when somebody doesn't listen? What do you do when the person who doesn't listen has the support of a crowd? Because Socrates isn't confronted by one man the way he is in so many of the dialogues. He's confronted by a group. So one of the fundamental questions... So it all looks innocent. You read Mark. This goes to your comment. It all looks innocent on the surface. There's nothing happening. This one guy gets railroaded by a group of people who want to talk about justice, and they go off. Except there's nothing innocent about that book. The whole book has as its central concern this. It's what is justice. It goes back to C.S. Lewis's concern in Abolition of Man. It goes back to almost every book we've read. Billy Budd, um, Brothers Karamazov, you go wherever you want. The fundamental question for Plato and the fundamental question for us always, that's why it's a timeless work, is this. What is justice? It was the great concern of the Old Testament. It was a fundamental concern of Christ. When he went to his cross, he said, I did not come to overthrow the law. I came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill his father's justice. So it's been one of the fundamental concerns for us all along. The question at the outset of the Republic that, that, that becomes clear in the dialogue between the men engaged with Socrates is this. One of them will say, Thrasymachus will say to Socrates, justice is what the stronger make it. Justice is the stronger over the weaker. Whatever they decide is just is just. That's, by the way, that's consistent with the Old Testament because you know in some of the songs that some of the men get together and say, we want to kill the just man. He shames us. So the whole point of the republic is to discover what real justice is. Is justice conventional? Is it man-made? Or is it inherent in the, in the nature of being? C.S. Lewis's whole argument was based on the premise that it is. The trunk. Man working on the trunk. The modern man no longer acknowledges a trunk. A way. The Tao. That there is a way. The whole, every episode in the Old Testament rests on the belief that there is a way, a justice to God's order. Laws only get at it. Bad laws can be made that are at odds with God's justice, his order. When a man conforms himself, when he brings himself into attunement with God's order, he's called the just man almost every first reading in the mass almost every week celebrates affirms that justness the just man the good man god loves god loves the just man he loves justice because it's an affirmation of his order um it used to be true, I don't know that it is any longer, it's, I'm really confused about what goes on in law school, but one of the principal texts of law school up until recent times was Antigone's, Antigone, Sophocles' Antigone. We didn't read it. But I mentioned that that scene. After the war, when the two brothers are killed, um, Creon makes an edict forbidding anybody to bury Polynices because remember, he rebelled against the city. Antigone, um, his, his sister, Odysseus' daughter, goes against the king and buries her brother. Not Odysseus. Hmm? Oedipus. Oedipus. And it's on the basis of that that he condemns her. The play will end with her hanging herself and Creon's son will hang him sense, himself too because he lost the woman he loved. Creon's edict... Leads to the, the death of a number of really important people. So the principal issue of Antigone, so that's written several centuries before Christ, was one of, the, one, one of the basic books of every law school because it raised this question. The central conflict of Antigone is what's the relationship between the law of the city, that is Caesar, we can put it that way, the law of the city and God's law that's the fundamental problem Antigone saying I'm not going to obey your law because there's a higher law that you should bury your loved ones should be buried so here's the by the way to me it's the feminism is a new thing she's a woman she's taking on a king it was you know don't say these things are unheard of that tragedy is based on and everybody scorns her more because she is a woman but the fight she's taking on is basically if, because she takes the position that God's law is higher than the law of the state, of the laws that men make. So one of the fundamental questions for people entering law school, what's the nature of law? Is it conventional? Is it man-made? Or does it reflect something in nature? It's been a fundamental question to every work we've read. Plato in in the Republic is taking up that question and what he will do is show that there's a nature to man I've drawn that circle before there's a nature to man and it's only when the state in the laws that it makes is in conformity with that nature that the political order will be good when the political order is out of tune with that nature it becomes bad that's why there are oppressive regimes in the world. I mean, we all know that. There are people fleeing to the United States because the nature of so many regimes is anti really anti-human. They're horrible. So the fundamental question of, of Plato's Republic is, um, is justice a product of things that man makes? Or is it inherent in a way so that the laws that he makes should be in conformity with that, and what happens when men's actions are out of conformity with that nature. That was the great concern for C. S. Lewis in abolition of man. That's why he called it abolition of man. Let me stop because we're gonna turn to Lear. But any any questions on that? Is that it's been so fundamental to our work that I feel like I'm just repeating what I've said a good number of times. Any questions? Tracy? No? Barbara? <laughs> Debbie, you haven't been around for a while. Come on, I can't believe you don't have a question on you. No, honestly, Okay, somebody tell me, was that a complete muddle or was it clear? I've got to know before we, okay. Mark, if I've got an okay from you, I'm going to go ahead.
4: Bob, you have an okay, but I'm just going to tell you (laughs) that you pose a question over about 10 minutes that we could honestly spend the next six class periods just going over the last 10 minutes you said.
0: I know, I know. all, all I can say... All right, let's move on. Right. All of you should be thankful for Shakespeare then. Because <laughs> it'll save us from six weeks. Here, let's go. Here, here's the question that I want... So if you keep that in mind, what I'd like to do is I'm going to summarize the, the opening chapter, or the opening act, pardon, the opening act, and um, then I'm going to do a couple of things. But here, here's where our discussion is going to go. I'd like to look at Gloucester, Edmund, Goneril, Reagan, Lear, King of France, and Cordelia, statements they make, all of them in relation to the tension that I just set out. This question of what's the relationship between man-made laws and God's law? Are people in a tune with nature or not? Because the central focus of this play is nature. Is there a nature or not? Because there's so much in the modern world that says there's not a nature to things. There's no nature, everything's random, it's a product of these forces. There's no nature, you can, you can change your nature, you can make up your nature whatever you want. So there's lots of things running contrary to a sense that there is a natural law or a divine law. So keep that tension in mind, but I'd like to relate every one of those characters to that theme. We'll look at passages, okay? So let's... So, if I can, can just quickly, I'm going to, if I can, just quickly summarize the play. You know, in the beginning, um, we learn about Edmund's um, illegitimacy as, as Gloucester's son. And um, shortly after that exchange, Lear enters with his um, entourage and with his daughters, and it's at that point that he is going to step down as king and turn authority over to his daughters. And he does it by asking them to declare their love for him. and And his response is, he's going to give a measure of authority and property in a in accord with their love. And you know what happens? The The two oldest daughters declare their love and Cordelia would say she can say nothing. I want to hold off and just leave it there. Um, um, Act 1, scene 2, opens with Edmund um, giving the soliloquy on nature and his awareness of what it means to be a bastard child, an illegitimate child. So, a child according to nature, but not according to the law. So in one sense Edmund is focusing this question of the relationship between law and nature. According to the laws he's going to be dispossessed. His brother is going to is going to inherit all of Gloucester's kingdom his wealth and Edmund not because he's a bastard. So it's raising the question of legitimacy and illegitimacy law and nature explicitly, okay? After Lear has divided his kingdom and banished both um, Kent and Cordelia, he goes to Goneril's castle. That's interesting. Hold on to this. Um, Goneril's his oldest daughter, and you know that he goes there, but Goneril makes clear to all of her servants that she wants them to treat um, Lear's retinue um, disrespectfully because she doesn't want him around. She wants her father out. In her mind, he's a nuisance. And she does not want him holding on to any power with his knights, his soldiers. So she asks him to cut down the soldiers. She uses the excuse of misbehavior. It's not, but I mean, it may be it just maybe not watching them. But she uses that an excuse to ask him to cut his power in half, get rid of half of his soldiers. Um. In Act One, Scene Four. Kent comes and appears at Goneril's um, castle and supports Lear and offers himself into service. So Kent, who we know is the most loyal man around Lear because he's the only one that spoke the truth to him. It made Lear so angry he banished him. Kent is now in disguise. Um, Think about Odysseus, think about other people who've used their disguises in the service of some other good. In this case, it's not his own good. He's serving as king. Um, um, Kent and Goneril's servant, Oswald, fight, and and Oswald insults Lear, and Kent comes in to um, defend him, Um, and so Lear thinks more of him because he does that. The fool arrives, and there's this... um, what seems to be a nonsense exchange between the two of them, except I want to focus on it um, because as in everything else what seems to be silly or nonsensical in Shakespeare always shows a greater wisdom. In Act 1, Scene 5, Lear sends Kent to deliver a message to Gloucester um, and, the, um, and The Fool and Lear have this um, um, this exchange. Um, remember when When Lear is at Goneril, he's so upset by what happens um, and um, by her disrespect of him that he leaves her thinking that she's a treacherous daughter and curses her and goes on to Regan thinking that Regan will be the faithless daughter he thought both of those daughters were. So at the outset of the play, we've got a number of things going on. We've got Gloucester acknowledging that one of his sons is illegitimate. We've got Lear um, renouncing his power, seemingly to step down, resigning it, and um, two of the three children are um, deceptive, power-grasping, selfish, looking out only for their own good, and the one daughter who is faithful is dispossessed. So that's the opening of the play. Let me stop there. Just If, if anybody... If I need to clear anything or if I've left anything out, let me know because I want to turn to the play um, and deal with some of these questions that I've or some of these themes that I've tried to describe a few minutes ago. Any, anything I left out or any questions about what's going on at this point? No Mark, you've got a hand up here on hand showing did you want to no it's down okay want I want to go directly to the opening and and I want I, I want to try to get to the exchange between Lear and the fool just to show you a wisdom in foolishness. remember what was Christ's words Paul's words about foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of wise men or?
2: Wisdom of
0: men. Yeah, huh? Wisdom of men. Yeah. So hold on to that notion of foolishness because remember in the city the people who prosper, who who pride themselves in their accomplishments think of themselves as knowing and one of the functions of the fool in Shakespeare is to show there's a greater wisdom that most men don't see. It's like Christ's parables. It's not obvious on the surface. You have to look at things closely. So I want to be sure we get to that before we end tonight. night. But let's start at the beginning. Can you go to the beginning? I'm going to read through some of this quickly and just ask some questions as we go along. It begins with Gloucester and um, um, coming with um, Kent and Edmund. And this is the way it begins. Kent. I I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. Albany remembers Goneril's um, husband. And from here, it seems that Luke liked Albany, or Lear Lear liked Albany more than Cornwall. Okay, and Albany is Gloucester's husband. Goneril. Goneril. Holy cow, it's getting worse and worse. Gloucester, it, it did always seem so to us, but now in the division of the kingdom it appears not which of the dukes he values most, for equalities are so weighed that curiosity is neither, in neither can make choice of either's moiety. He can't decide between them who deserves more. Is this not your son? His breeding, sir, hath been at my charge. I have so often blushed to acknowledge him that now I am brazen to it. I cannot conceive you. Sir, this young fellow's mother could, whereupon she grew round-wombed, and had indeed sir, a son for her cradle, er, Harriet had a husband for her bed. Do you smell a fault? I cannot wish the fault undone, the issue being so proper. So Edmund appears to be a very... There's a stature to him. He's probably good-looking and, and bold-looking, um... So he has all these naturally good qualities. But he's illegitimate. Gloucester, um, but I have a son, sir, by order of law, some year older than this one. he's no dear in my account. Though this knave came something saucily to the world before he was sent for, yet was his mother fair, there was good sport at his making, and the horseman must be acknowledged. Do you know this noble gentleman Edmund? They introduce each other, greet each other, um, speak polite things to each other, and then Lear enters. Now hold on just for a second. I've, I've said many times that the, that the whole of Shakespeare's play, every single play, is contained in the opening lines of, of the first act. Um, they give away, and, and by the way, this modern scientists would agree with this. D, DNA is based on it. That The part always shows the whole. That's a DNA principle it always indicates the whole from which it's taken. And that's true for Shakespeare. Every, every part in the play, if you take Boethius' still point at the center, everything that goes on relates to some unspoken center or the play wouldn't hold together. We've got to decide here, as we have with every other work, what is that unspoken center? Now here are the opening lines, if what I'm saying is correct, um, I mean it comes from long study of these plays so I hope you'll trust me on this. The opening lines give away the play. What's the concern of the opening line? What's going on? And, and, and let me ask it even more pointedly. How would you describe Gloucester's attitude towards conception, childbirth, a legal son or an illicit son or an illicit son? What's his attitude? How would you characterize him as a man? What's the issue? What's the issue here at the opening of the play? Sue, so go ahead. Sue, yeah. Your ahead. T- Sue, so your audio's not on. What
1: is, sorry, what is truth and fealty based on what is love, based on what is what is what is truth. What is what is the worth of the way society th- sees things versus maybe the way things are.
0: And Flesh that out now. Related to the scene, Kenya, match it up but, with the character. Okay.
1: So, so you've got the distinction between someone who is legitimate and illegitimate and what that does to those personalities and ultimately what they do as sons to or with their father. And then you have opposed to that, which isn't quite in those first lines, but sort of introduced the, the loyalty, the love of the daughters. For their father.
0: Hold and, off on the daughter's you? Shall we get there? Okay. All right. But go, Sue. So can, t- can you continue? Um, because the terms are are law, and sense. But but you mentioned love. So, but characterize Gloucester in those terms that you're using. Can you, as a man?
1: Well, I think society sees illegitimate children as lesser than legitimate children, and that ultimately leads him to. Lie, fool, cajole—I don't know what the right term is. Quite, his father—he has a need to prove himself, and by that to denigrate the legitimate son. Um, whereas, if society had accepted him as son, perhaps that might not have
0: happened. Debbie, I don't know. Yeah, no, no, go. Yeah, Debbie, did you have a thought? Your audio on.
3: I just yep. turned it on. Okay. Um, my sense from from this is that Gloucester thought both sons were pretty fine. It's just that society said, the law said that that um, one would be the heir and the other one wouldn't. But um, that that he he thought that both sons were pretty okay. Um, and and I don't I didn't see that he was. Denigrating Edmund because he was illegitimate—it was just a matter of law that that he wasn't going to be entitled to anything.
0: Yeah, I didn't either, but it, yeah, it just. Anybody else on? Can anybody characterize Gloucester? Any anything more to add on him? He's pretty casual. Go ahead. You thought
1: there was a lot. Can you
0: hear, Doc? Can you guys hear, Suzanne?
1: He's pretty casual. Um, I think Debbie's right. He doesn't see a problem with Edmund. There was good sport at his making. Um, his mother was pretty, um, sexy. Sexy. He came saucily into the world. I mean, he came in what he maybe shouldn't have, but he did. Um, he doesn't see he
3: doesn't see any problem with it. Okay,
0: let me ask this question a different way. Then, how would you characterize Gloucester's attitude towards marriage or sex? Or or his wife. Or some other woman. Debbie is your hand still up? Go ahead. Go
3: ahead. I I think that he was pretty casual about the whole thing. Yeah. I think Suzanne's right. I think he's very, very casual. It's it's like, like um well, okay. I have a wife, and therefore I'm going to have legitimate children, but I'm perfectly happy to bed someone else because it's great fun, and right. why not?
0: Boy, this just shakes me. I can't read these lines. I I, I I can't read these lines without being upset. He He's so glib. He's so glib. I, I, I mean, I it, it's hard not to see this affecting his relationship with his wife. I mean, I can't imagine... Let me ask the women here if you would be happy with a man like that, looking at, having sex with you as casually as he did—the wife or the mistress. I think what Shakespeare's showing us is that he is so casual, so glib, as if it's nothing, and makes sport of it. You know that I I don't think there is anything denigrating. If anything, he's trying to dignify it. You know that there was a lot of sex in it. So I mean, just it, it really troubles me to see this, but. Anyway, the opening scene shows us Gloucester introducing his son the way he does and it's it's left there. And then Lear enters with his daughters and we're going to see now not a relationship dealing with a father and a son, or his sons, but a father and his daughters. So, immediately Shakespeare is, is showing us father authority, a father relationship to his children, and the problems with off political office. But at the heart of him at the beginning is this question about legitimacy and law and nature. Okay. Um, Lear comes on right now, and he's going to break up his kingdom, resign his power and give it over. And he, he says to his daughter, so tell me how much you love me. <laughs> on, on Act 1, Scene 1, line about 55 or so, Goneril's response is, So I love you more than word can wield a matter, dearer than eyesight, space, and liberty, beyond what can be valued, rich or rare, no less than life, with grace, health, beauty, honor, as much as child-error love or father found, a love that makes breath poor and speech unable, beyond all manner of so much I love you. The dignity of those lines reminds me of Portia. The eloquence of them is extraordinary. Um... And Lear gives her an appropriate amount because her love seems so good. Then he turns to Reagan and says, What about you? Reagan says, I made of that self metal as my sister and prize me at her worth. In my f- true heart I find the names she names my very deed of love, only she comes too short. And she has all these noble sentiments, but and she names what I feel, except the problem with her is that she doesn't come close enough. I love you more that I profess myself an enemy to all other joys which the most precious square of sense possesses. You can multiply anything you can measure, and they're not going to come up to the love I feel for you. And find I am alone felicitated in your dear Highness's love. Cordelia's response to the first one was, What shall Cordelia speak, love and be silent? I mean, what can you say next to Goneril? And after Reagan speaks, she says, Then poor Cordelia... And yet not so, since I am sure my love's more ponderous than my tongue. If you set it next to Reagan and compare yourself with that, how can your love be anything but ponderous? Because the words of Reagan were ponderous. So Lear now turns to Cordelia and says, "Speak." Um, the vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be interest. He's aware. Boy, the. I I hope everybody's sensitive. To the mercenary quality of marriage here. You know, the women are to be wedded according to their worth. And Lear's aware of that, and he knows that the king of France wants Cordelia. What a, what a catch that would be, because Cordelia would inherit Lear's kingdom. So now think about this in terms of Lear's time. This is centuries before Christ. But think of it in terms of Shakespeare's England. Think about Henry's treatment of his wives. And how 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 much his motives were defined in terms of political interest or love. I mean, it's I was that glad that Sue introduced that notion of love in the first one because it's sort of buried here, but it's it's made explicit in this. Lear knows that both Burgundy and France have political interests, or assumes that. <clears throat> so he says. The vines of France and milk of Burgundy strive to be of interest. What can you say to draw a third more opulent than your sisters? So tell me how much more you love me and I'll give you more. I want you to I, I want everybody to keep alive what I'm I hope I'm not giving too much away. To what's going on with Gloucester and his son as a father to a son, Lear as a father to two daughters, okay? Speak, he says, Cordelia, nothing, my lord. Nothing, could do you nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. Speak again. Unhappy that I am. I cannot heave my heart into my mouth. I love your Majesty according to my bond, no more or less. He he can't believe what he's hearing. Good, my lord, you have begot me, bred me, loved me. I return those duty back as are fit, are right fit. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sisters' husbands if they say they love you all? Happily when I shall wed, that Lord whose hand must take my plight shall carry half my love with him at my care and duty. Sure, I shall never marry like my sisters um, to love my father all. Um, Lear is outraged. His anger is immediate. I mean, it goes from no anger to, I would say, close to rage. You may disagree, but what takes place from now through the next to the remainder of the scene, is on a scale of anger. He can't believe his daughter. He's outraged by her. He has nothing good to say about her. Um, She can't defend herself. Kent stands up to defend her and speaks directly to his king and says, you're being a fool, you're wrong. And it's on the basis of of that response that when Lear tries to shut him down and Kent won't um, shut up, that he banishes Kent He's already told um, um, Cordelia she's lost favor with him. He says about line 180, um, get out of here. If you're here in 10 days, um, I'll have your life. Kent's response, 180, Fare thee well, king. He's loved this king more than anything. He's served him his life. He will serve him to his death. That's the kind of man he is. Fare thee well, king. Sis Thus thou wilt appear. Freedom lives hence and banishment is here. There will be no freedom in this kingdom anymore. Anybody who lives here will be living in banishment. So he's playing with paradoxes. This moment changes the nature of that kingdom. Political power and authority. Okay. Now you know what happens here. Lear is going to call Burgundy and um, France to speak themselves. Lear on page 209 Burgundy says, Pardon me, royal sir, election makes not up on such conditions. I can't make a choice based on this. You've taken everything away. <laughs> Obviously, that means I'm partly here for what I stood to gain from it. God, I feel sort of cynical putting things this way. I don't because the language is so much better. But the the beauty is he's showing that the nobility of language often conceals something ignoble. Lear says, Then leave her, sir, for by the power that made me I tell you all her wealth. For you, great king, I would not from your love make such a stray to match you what I hate, therefore beseech you to avert your liking a more worthier way than on a wench whom nature, underline that, whom nature is ashamed almost acknowledged here. What's Lear's understanding of nature? I want to come back to it. How does he look at nature or law in what he's just done? But there he frames it in terms of natural, in nature. France says that she whom even but now was your best object, the argument of your praise, balm of your age, the best, the dearest, should in this thrice time commit a thing so monstrous to dismantle so many fields of favor. He can't believe it because Cordelia has been his favorite. Sure, her offense must be of such unnatural degree, nature again, that monsters or your um, forevouched vouched affection fall into taint that something's wrong with you, which to believe of her must must be a faith that reason without miracle should never plant in me. I can't believe it's going to happen. Cordelia has been dispossessed she stands to gain nothing. Burgundy turns away from her then, and France says this on page, or line 250. Fairest Cordelia, thou art most rich being poor, most choice forsaken, and most loved, despised. Thee and thy virtues here I seize upon. Be it lawful, I take up what's cast away, God's gods, to strange that from their coldest neglect, my love should kindle to inflame respect, thy dowerless daughter. The fact that she's lost everything, so that she carries no externals, makes her more prized. So there's nothing artificial in the way. He can love her more because she's been dispossessed. My love should kindle to inflame respect, thy dowerless daughter, king, thrown to my chance is queen of us of ours and our fair race not all the duke's waterish burgundy (laughs) can buy this unprized precious maid of me there's no money that he could use to buy her off Um, bid them farewell cordelia though unkind thou lose thou losest here a better where to find she's coming to a better place Lear, thou hast her, France, let her be thine, for we have no such daughter, nor should we ever that face of hers again see that face. Therefore, be gone without our grace, our love, our benison, come noble Burgundy. So he's saying, You're no daughter of mine any longer. I'll have nothing to do with you. Um, I want to just read this thing, um, this passage in Act Two, or Act One, Scene Two with this brief soliloquy from Ned Edmund because he focuses on this issue of nature and the difference between what seems to be a difference between nature and law or at least the laws um, of society. Thou nature are my goddess to thy law my services are bound. So not law nature. He's a product of a natural unlawful marriage. He's giving himself to that. My services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshine's lag of a brother? Why, bastard? Wherefore base, when my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true? As honest madam issue, why brand they us with base? With baseness, bastardly, base, base. Who, in the lusty stealth of nature, take more com- composition and fierce quality than doth within a dull, stale, tired bed, go to the creating whole tribe of fops got between sleep and wake. He's the product of a lusty relationship, not some stale worn-out marriage. Well, then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land, our father's love is to the bastard Edmund, as to the legitimate. Fine word, legitimate. Well, my legitimate, if this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund, the base, shall top the legitimate, I grow, I prosper now, gods, stand up for bastards. Now, you know what's going to happen. He's going to come in and convince Edgar that, um, um, that his father thinks he's out to kill him to protect himself and he's going to convince Gloucester, his father, that Edgar's doing that. So the father's going to believe that Edgar, Edgar is treacherous and looking to kill him um, to, to to get more quickly the inheritance coming to him. You know that Lear will go to Goneril's and he'll be, um, he will be outraged and leave and go to um, Reagan's. And in both instances, both of his daughters are going to ask him to reduce your retinue so he has less power. I want to go quickly to this one scene between The Fool and Lear and then come back and ask that basic question um, that I asked earlier. How do we see each one of those characters in relation to um, nature? Act 1, scene 4, 5, sorry, scene 5. Lear is sending Kent um, to Reagan, and he and the fool have this exchange. Um, He says to Kent, Go you before to Gloucester with these letters. Acquaint my daughter no further with anything you know that comes from her demand out of the letter. If your diligence be not speedy, I shall be there afore you. I will not sleep, my lord, till I've delivered your letter. So he's gonna go off to Reagan. Now the fool and the king have this exchange, and it all seems on the surface stupid. Okay. For a moment, assume that it's not stupid. That Shakespeare often disguises and comes, asks us to come at things in another way, because if we're too used to customs, the way things are. We're too often blinded, and the only way we can get to a truth is obliquely, indirectly. So he's using a kind of indirection to get at something here. This is the exchange. Fool, if a man's brains were in his heels, were it not in danger of kimes? Aye, boy. Then I pray thee be merry, thy wit shall not go slipshod. And his brains are in his feet where they don't belong right now, Um, because they're covering him. What he's saying is he's lost his mind. Lear laughs, ha ha ha. Shall see thy other daughter will use thee kindly, for though she's as like this as a crab's, like an apple. Yet I can tell what I can tell. What canst thou tell, boy? And remember this: remember the, one of the functions of the fool in court was to always tell a truth that other men couldn't take tell because they'd lose their life, just the way Kent did. So here's the fool playing the role of a fool, speaking these truths but nobody else could speak except they're all indirect. So what do they mean? What canst thou tell, boy, she will taste as like this as a crab does to a crab, that thou canst tell why one's nose stands in the middle thou canst tell why one's nose stands in the middle of a face? Can you do that? No. Why, to keep one's eyes of either side, nose, Um, that what a man cannot smell out, which he may spy into. Okay. Um, Why does the nose stand in the middle, between two eyes? I did her wrong. Canst tell how an oyster makes his shell? No, I neither. But I can tell why a snail has a house. Why? Why, to put his head in, not to give it away to his daughters and leave his horns without a case. I will forget my nature, so I will forget my nature. So kind a of father, be my horses ready, thy asses are gone about them. The reason why the seven stars are no more than seven is pretty reason. Because they are not eight. Yes, indeed. The reason they're seven is because they're not eight. What's just transpired? Can anybody make any sense of what the fool is saying to Lear? And break it be specific. Take any of those images. What goes on when he says um, can that tell me why a nose stands in the middle of one face? No. Why to keep one's eyes of either side the nose. That's what a man cannot smell, but thus he cannot what he cannot smell he may spy into. Take that. Can anybody make any sense of why he's saying that? Um, no. Nor can I, nor I neither, but I can tell. Do you and snail has a house on. his so head, why to put his head in it not to give it away what's going on it all seems like nonsense to go
1: well the, the second part is he's given away his kingdom he's given away his power and he assumes the daughters who as sycophants sucked up to him and said they loved him a lot were are going to take care of him and so that's to me that's the second part in the first part um I'm trying to go back and remember exactly what i had in mind for that it, it's read that one again just which so i'm sorry the nose and the eyes
0: the nose and the eyes
1: no yeah the nose and the eyes that that you are given things in nature by which to understand your world and the eyes are there as a sense don't just use your nose don't just use your eyes use all the senses that you have to figure out What's going on? Because he was completely fooled. And I have another statement I'm going to make that we you haven't asked, and so go. Um, no, no, go. From the opening, I just thought, Lear, you deserve everything you're going to get <laughs> because he's such a.
0: Be know, careful of your how language how, right now.
1: <laughs> tell me how how wonderful I am. <laughs> tell me, you know. Well, okay, anybody that starts out that way is asking to be taken advantage of and be made a even formalism.
0: even worse. Tell me tell me how much I love, or you love me so I can show you how much I love you. I mean, that's what love is to Lear. Oh, God, well, if it's just... it's love,
1: they, it's bribery then, <laughs> and, you know, okay, but, but, but I'll be satisfied with whatever you tell me, so he obviously hasn't used any of his senses <laughs> right. to ascertain what his daughters are like. Anyway, I think he gets everything he deserves.
0: <laughs> Wait, I'm so... Yeah, I hope you guys all... I, I was so proud of you. I, I hope you got my letter after last class, because... I was actually a little bit surprised that, you know, I thought you were going to be more sympathetic with um, with Polynices, you know, and in, in what he was bringing to Oedipus, and none of you had pity. I mean, I thought, God, you are all pitiless. You're just, but I thought you were all right on. I mean, you just you just saw through him, and that's a father son relationship again. That's a father son relationship, and you I also. I don't
1: think I'm on your list, Bob, because I didn't get. It. I'm not getting any emails,
0: but we'll solve that. Oh later. wow, 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 wow! Did you guys not get email from me? Okay. Anybody have yeah, any other an
3: email.
0: Anybody have any other comments on the the exchange between the fool and Lear? Every one of those lines that the fool makes makes clear there's a nature to things. Even if you don't understand it why the eyes are on either side of the nose or the nose is in the middle, that's our nature. Do you understand it? why why um, a snail has a house you know I mean he's got this sort of silly automatic answer but every one of them is saying there's a nature to things and he's making clear that what Lear did shows no understanding he has none of the nature of a father or daughters or political rule Um, I mean Sue's words are I'm right sort of glad. Sorry. Right on. Right on, but but in a, I mean, you, if you haven't read the play or you're not through it yet, you know that they're not going to do justice to the depth of suffering that's going to begin in a few in another act, um, be, because it, it's going to lead us to the only suffering that I know of in Shakespeare that, that comes closer to this is what goes on between Anthony and Cleopatra. It's it's um, the depth of suffering here is really great. So, but the irony in this is that every one of the fool's comments is making clear that there's a nature to things. Lear doesn't see the depth of what's going on. He completely misses it all. There's a nature the things. And think about Shakespeare in, in what I said earlier about the two revolutions going on. The Protestant, the scientific, have completely called into question the, the way of looking at the world up to that time, both in religious terms. Half the world converted, was Catholic. Half the world converted, was Catholic. And the other half that was, was non-believing became skeptical. Hold on to the significance of this just for a second. The worldview up until that time was Ptolemaic. Right? It was Ptolemaic, according to Ptolemy. The, right? The earth was at the center of the universe with all the planets revolving around it. The earth was the place of death. The sun revolved around it. It came up and the morning went down. After Copernicus, everybody realized the earth was not the center of the universe. To the extent that the church based its authority on rational evidence, that authority became undermined. Who could believe the church anymore when it vested its authority in a Ptolemaic scheme? The other interesting fact is, according to that ancient view, this, is, this was a way of looking at science, very platonic and very real. Because was the, the earth was at the center of things and things were mutable, constantly changing, you could never know anything about them. The only possible knowledge was vested in the planets because they were eternal, unchanging. Mars, Mercury, Venus, you know, all of them. When the Earth took its place in the system, it took its place among an eternal system, an endless system. Unchanging things. And that meant you could suddenly know man in a new way. So a whole old way of viewing the world was thrown out the window. And a whole new way came in and it left people questioning their faith and it left people questioning their knowledge and the authority of it. So here Shakespeare is presenting a play at the center of it is this principle that I, that I gave you from Plato. Um, is justice what's decided by the stronger over the weaker? or is there a justice to the nature of things? Because if political regimes are not in accord with the nature of things, they will become oppressive. Here at the opening of Lear, we're we're seeing things unfold in terms of natural relationships between a father and a son, father and his daughter, and political rule to subjects in the way it's passed on. So he's raising questions about Man's nature and the nature of political authority. Um, let's go back now. I want to. Here's the question that I had for everybody. Oh, we're not going to have time to take on all of these, but I want to ask them. Um, I'll give you these if lines. Take them down, and we won't get time to look at them, but. I want to look at each one of these characters in the context of this question about nature and laws. What is man's nature, Um, the laws that he makes? How does he look at himself and others in that context? So Gloucester, Act 1, Scene 1 from the opening, Edmund in the same one. Take a look at Goneril and the lines we read, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 55. Reagan, same thing, Line 70. Look at Lear, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 211. You're
1: going too fast. I can't write it that
0: fast. It's in, it's in the notes. They're there. France, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 250. I'm gonna go back to these so I don't... And Cordelia, Act 1, Scene 1, Line 280. So, my question is, how do we look at these people in the way that they look the way they stand with other people the way they look at them what does it reveal to us about the way they look at their nature are they in tune with nature or not or or are are they in tune with the laws are the laws by which they live in tune with nature Let me take a couple of these right away. Listen, how do we look at Gloucester? What's his? How does he stand with respect to nature? Does he see? Is there a justice to nature? Is there such a thing for him? Does he take it seriously in the way that he looks at his son or treats his son? Or we can't, we don't know. But um, by implication. Can we say anything about the way he treats his wife or the way he stands with his wife? Jeannie, how do you look at Gloucester in the context of this larger question about nature and whether there is a nature to things, whether there's a justice to nature?
2: I'm I'm confused. Yeah, I know it's.
0: Anybody? I'm. Anybody want to get us started on this, Karen? Are you at a party? You got all those. Go ahead. Sorry, Tracy. Go ahead.
3: It seems to me that perhaps he's um, out of tune with both.
0: Go. (laughs) Why? Why do you say that?
3: Well, depending on what the laws of marriage are, he's breaking them according to our our view of marriage. And
0: they they would have um, been the same at, at Shakespeare's time anyway, whether they were actual King Lear's time, but yeah, go ahead.
3: And he's um just fundamentally like disrespecting the um the beauty of that man male female relationship and what it creates. Um so he's out of tune with that the, the nature of that union.
0: Let me follow that. Fred, if you can just hold on for one second. Go back to Plato's concern. Is um, law conventional, man-made, or is it accord with nature? How does Gloucester look at law? Is it man-made so he can do with it whatever he wants if he has the power to do it? Or does he feel um, obliged, responsible for something greater than himself, um, to which to bring himself into attunement? That he has to conform himself to. If you had to make a guess, <coughs> Shakespeare's not—he's <coughs> not giving an exposition. He's presenting a character. But if you had to look at—if you had to look at Gloucester in those terms. Is law something that he can use for himself and use as he wants, or is there a law greater than himself um, to which he holds himself in service that he has to honor?
3: I don't know. You know, his perception of his two sons might have something to do with this answer, although I don't know that I could put my finger on it.
0: Yeah, Fred, go ahead. You you had... Uh, well,
2: before I go, I think Mark's had his hand up for a while, so I was going to... Do... Oh. Oh, okay.
0: No? I, didn't, I didn't see okay. it enter. here, yeah.
2: Um, I, I guess, for me, the opening of this play kind of took me back to the opening of The Merchant of Venice, in a sense that um, Shakespeare is kind of laying out for us here um, the nature of the society, and it is, in fact, um, uh, the laws, the laws of man and, and the laws of, of God are very much out of tune. Or a, a better way to say it is that the laws of man are very much out of tune with the laws of God. And I think in each one of these characters that you've listed here, we see how that uh, alignment is, is out. And in Gloucester's case specifically, um, I think Tracy's right. I mean, he thinks he can pretty much live the law however he wants. And clearly how he feels about one son, uh, Edgar versus Edmund, points that out, I think, very clearly in a sense that in in God's law, he should look at both of those sons equally. But he, he clearly doesn't. And for me, as you go through all all of these different characters, you Shakespeare's kind of showing us uh, how out of tune it is. Because when we get to Cordelia, you know, her response basically says that she's in tune because her relationship with her father is 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 exactly what it should be. You're my father. I'm your daughter, and I and I love you accordingly. Uh, so she's the only one around the table until the King of France comes in, that that has their focus in the right place.
0: Yeah, let me try to, if I can, try to focus because we're our time is up, and I'd like to pick up here with the same question. If you all could just take a look at the opening passage and each one of those characters—Gloucester, Edmund, Goneril, Reagan, Lear, France—just in the opening scenes. If you if you if you look at the tension between the, the two laws as, as Plato sets them out, man-made laws or conventional laws or laws that are inherent in nature, that um, I, I, I'm avoiding the use of God, um, Fred, because um, the only use of it, and, I, and, and by the way, I think Shakespeare's avoiding it here. It's interesting. The only time that I can remember God, the word even coming up, is when Edmund himself says, now God stand up for the bastards. The issue here is nature. The, it, whether there's a, a justice inherent in nature or whether justice is man-made. And what we're seeing uh, is our people who, whose lives are defined in either one of those terms. So Lear defines himself in terms of his power, what he can make of it, what he can do with it. He wants to buy love. He wants, he he looks at love as something that can be bought. And look at Henry or any of the kings under which Shakespeare lived. That you could use political power to have your will. Gloucester's in the same position. I mean, he can he can bet it, he's not ashamed of anything. There's nothing to hide from him. He talks about as if it's nothing. He has his will. So clearly when you look at those men, you're seeing men whose understanding of justice is really an expression of their own selfishness. They're wanting what they want. They use their minds to justify what they do. And it goes to what um, Sue was saying about Lear getting everything, He's you know, because the whole world is going to come down on him shortly. If you look at France and Cordelia, the really interesting contrast is neither one of them looks at a human being according to his outer clothes or entra- what's the trappings. word? Trappings. His wealth or the artificial things that make up his. he's a king or she's the daughter of a king. Neither one of them looks at a human being in terms of their possessions, um, their wealth, their display of power, their status. Each one of them looks at the other according to their nature. The king makes it clear that he wants Cordelia dispossessed because he has her as she is. And um, Cordelia's response to her father, the reason she can say nothing, is because she can't flatter him. She's not going to say something that's untrue. So she, and the two daughters clearly say what they do to their father because they want things. They're, they're involved in the same way of looking at love. They think love can be purchased. If they say the right thing, they'll get the right thing. So we're looking at two radically different ways of looking at human nature and this question of justice. One of them is inherent in the nature of things. The other is in accord with those laws that men make. And very often, um, the, the character they take depends on the power of, of the people making them. In this case it's a king or a duke gloucester. So we're 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 seeing played out the struggle that Shakespeare Plato shows in the republic is justice man-made. What happens what happens when people in power make laws to fit their what they want. Are the laws that people make in accord with nature, or are they making laws to fit the vision they have of what it is they want? And Shakespeare's playing this out. Part of the beauty of this play is that he's not setting it in Renaissance England, he's setting it centuries before the coming of Christ, with a with an actual Lear who lived in a regime, who's king in a regime, long before. So it's going back to an ancient world and one of the questions we've got to ask is why is he doing, what's he doing? Um, because so many of these things seem relevant to what's going on at his own time. That people are creating laws, dealing with faith, dealing with the rule of people, um, forcing people to do certain things. So a lot's going on right now that, that's set in an ancient setting, but the speaks directly to changes that are taking place here on the threshold of modernity. Once again, we're looking at work that is dealing with the beginnings of our own world, the modern world as we know it. Um, Sue, you had something. Go ahead. Sorry,
1: I have a question, but maybe it should wait. It's, it's
0: no, no, no. I want to hear. I'm glad because we're about to... Yeah. just. What's on your mind? I'm glad. To let everybody hear.
1: You've said this several times, that that it's set in ancient world. But then what are Gloucester and France doing in there? I mean, it's the Dukes of Cornwall and Albany and Gloucester and France, and they're not ancient.
0: Okay, answer me this question. I'm going to answer your question with a question. What is Wittenberg doing in Hamlet's world?
1: (laughs) Well, I've never thought about the ancientness of settings. I guess I've read a lot of Shakespeare, but I've just accepted that they were written by Shakespeare at a certain time, right. and we're setting that time. They may be talking about eternal truths. So I don't question that. Anyway, no,
0: no, awesome. it's, a, it's a good question. Just hold on to mind, but hold. I'm so glad you asked it. Hold on to what I said earlier about um, Hamlet. Wittenberg didn't exist in Hamlet's time. You know why did Shakespeare? Set Hamlet in Wittenberg. Remember, we've talked about this. This is when we did Hamlet. It's a private revelation. It's what the whole play turns on—a private revelation. Why did Why did Shakespeare set Witten or Hamlet in the time of Wittenberg, at the time that Luther put up those theses? What was he doing? I, I I'm so glad for your question. Why is he putting all these, the Duke of Burgundy or the King of France? You know, why are they? Um, because re- relations change. But I mean. You know, the, sta- the nations may not have been called by those names, but there were territories that England was related to. Why is he doing this? It's a good question. And, and it, it leads to the other question. I, I really would encourage you all to read the, the, the piece that I included or dropped in our uh, site box called, um, I think, Poetry and Politics or Regimes and Poetry or something. What is Shakespeare doing with poetry because, it's I mean, one of the reasons historians hate Shakespeare is because of his historicity, his lack of it, that he seems so unfaithful to history. What's he doing? What's he doing? What is poetry giving us in, you know, in its, in its depiction of man? Are things literally the way they seem to us? Or is something more going on that we don't see that we can only find in poetry? I, there's that question I've been asking forever, but okay, we'll pick up. We'll do. We'll we'll do Act Two, and I would like to come back to this same question next week when we start just briefly to see what your thoughts are. But then I'd like to do Acts Two and Three, or try to. We may not. Let's see. Let's see how well we do. Do Two and Three next week, and then um, Four and Five the following week. So we'll spend two more weeks on Lear, and then and then the same thing with Pericles. We'll probably spend an evening on the first scene and then um, an evening on scenes two and three and then another evening on four and five. So we'll do Pericles. It's a it's a wonderful play. It's um, it's so deep and it speaks so much to our age. So um, I'll see you guys later. Debbie it's really good to see you. just feel like we haven't seen you forever. All of you keep each other, please, in in your prayers, and we'll do the same, okay? And all of you, all of you, be safe, because this thing is, it's at home, it's in our homes, it's in our families now, so you guys be safe. See you next week.
1: Thank you, Bob. Great class.
0: I do leave.
3: So you didn't have any trouble getting on.
0: Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Thank-